Let's um, bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to consider your word this morning, that through it you would give us a real understanding and appreciation of who you are, and that we would thereafter correctly align our lives to that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible in your hand, you can put it down. Because once again, we are in a topical sermon today and we're going to be jumping around a bit. There won't be time to look at the, the passages I'll be referring to. They'll be up on the overhead. Um, but don't get too used to that idea because once again, uh, we will be back in the book of Revelation from next week. And um, you should make sure you have your Bibles ready for that. So let's begin then. I've been a Christian for quite a long time and because of that I have sung a lot of choruses over the years. But one that's been in my head of late is one that was written by a fellow called Ralph Carmichael back in 1964. Yes, they actually could write back then. Although it's old, I'm certain that many of you will know it because we still sing it today and it goes like this. In the stars his handiwork I see, on the wind he speaks with majesty. Though he ruleth over land and sea, what is that to me? I will celebrate nativity, for it has a place in history. Sure, he came to set his people free. What is that to me? Till by faith I met him face to face, and I felt the wonder of his grace. Then I knew that he was more than just a God who didn't care, who lived away out there, and now he walks beside me day by day, ever watching o'er me lest I stray, helping me to find the narrow way. He's everything to me. That's a great little chorus, isn't it? It reminds us that while recognizing God's existence because we've seen the wonders of his handiwork as meritorious, it is not ever enough to bring us face to face with him in the proper relationship. We need faith and his grace through Jesus to get us there. And although it's apparently very simple, it is actually based on some deep theological truths, and guess what? That's where we're going today. I'm sure you will be delighted to hear that there are no less than three long theological words that are immediately connected with this chorus. They are imminence, transcendence, and ubiquity. And I will try to stay awake for the whole of my own sermon. Now, imminence is not a word that you would usually hear today. Its dictionary meaning is the state of being within or not going beyond a given domain. Well, let's try and put that in plainer English. The next time your wife calls from somewhere in the house, Where are you, Colin? You can reply, I am imminent to the lounge, dear. Because you are there on the couch with a beer and you aren't going anywhere as long as the All Blacks are crushing England. Now try this, brothers. I'm sure that it will be good for just a few minutes of stunned silence. Maybe enough to see another try before you have to go and pick your socks up from the bathroom. As far as Christians are concerned, however, imminence has a much more important meaning. So let's talk about that in some detail. To begin with, it sits as part of the theology of creation. Well, why does it sit there? We know that God created everything from nothing. 
He created us. He created bugs. He created elephants. The ground we walk on, the water we drink, and the air that we breathe. On a larger scale, the infinite universe. Now, we might not often think about it, but he also created an unseen spiritual realm at the same time because angels are also created beings. So all these things, everything, everywhere, came about because of God's will, purpose, plan, and power. But then what? That's the question. After he'd done all this stuff, what did he do next? We must ask that because... We also are created beings. We ought to know what our Creator is doing now so that we can have the right relationship with Him. We want to know, why are we here? Is God still interested in us or has He gone off and begun another project? Well, these queries are answered by the doctrine of imminence and so that is why it naturally fits into the larger topic of creation. Fortunately, thankfully, the Lord has not left us to grope around in the dark while we try to figure things out because he's given us that golden book, the Bible. It tells us so much about him. In fact, it tells us so much we could practically spend the whole of our lives examining and never wear it out. It tells us, for example, what God's relationship is to his creation, and it tells us what he did next. But, before we can get to that, we ought to give some thought to the overarching relationship between God and creation, because we will then have some idea of the story of the big picture before we start to read any of the detail of the chapters. So, let's go to Scripture. The first thing Scripture shows us in this context is that we must not confuse God with what he has made in any way. He is not what he has made. So we look at verses like Acts 17.24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands. And Isaiah 40.22, it is he who sits where? Above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Well, these are just a couple of many texts demonstrating the separation. And this is formally known as God's transcendence. And simply put, that means that in being and ability, God is far above. That's the key word. He is far above and independent of all that he has created. Not one being in any part of creation comes remotely close to knowing what God knows or being able to do what God does. And further, if by bang or whimper at any instant all of creation exploded and disappeared, God would remain behind unchanged and eternal. He is in a most special category of exactly one. Now this is a thing we ought to be extremely happy about. Ecstatic in fact. One of the foundations of our Kiwi society is the idea of egalitarianism. The idea that whether doctor or dock worker all are politically, socially and economically equal. Classes are not a thing in God's own and thus it may be difficult for us to hear that someone, even God, is far above us. And that's all very well. Earthly equality truly has great value. But what if God wasn't far above us? That would mean that he didn't know everything and wasn't able to do everything. That he may be swayed or bribed in some way. That he may not always be truthful and wasn't consistent in doing what he said. 
Well, then I must ask you, would he then be God, in fact, the kind of God that a sinful world needs so desperately, that we personally need so desperately? He might be more able than us, this is true, but what hope or meaning would our lives hold then if he was only able to lift slightly heavier things than us? And this is why our God, a transcendent and imminent God, is the only one who really makes sense. Simply because he is big enough to be worth believing in. Big enough actually to be unbelievable. And unbelievable is the only size big enough. While Christians are often dismissed by worldly people as believing in irrational fairy stories and pie in the sky when we die and so on, who is actually the more irrational? Those who hold that life, the universe and everything in its truly astonishing diversity and complexity all happen by chance and means nothing in the end. And this despite all that science and exploration has revealed about creation's workings. Or those who believe in a triune, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal and omniscient creator God whose existence answers all of the questions that really matter. Well, I ask you, who is actually the more irrational? It is true that believers cannot explain everything about God, but this comes back to his transcendence. Could an amoeba describe a man? No, of course not. It lacks the mean in every, means in every respect, and we are less than an amoeba relative to God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And this, friends, is exactly the God we need, the one who can do everything, who knows everything, who is consistent and dependable, who works to his own agenda and not one directed by others' interests, who can keep this whole mess on track and bring it to its planned conclusion despite the sinful meddling of humans. This is the glorious God we have. This is the glorious God who saves and keeps all those who have repented to call Jesus, Lord. Okay, <laughs> that's all very wonderful, Dave, but could you kindly spare us from any more words? What is the theological definition of imminence? Well, you might remember that I posed the question earlier. What did God do next? When he had finished creation and had his day of rest, what was his schedule at 0600 hours on Monday morning when the alarm went off? Well, one item towards the top of his agenda was imminent, as it had been from the very moment he first said, let there be. Simply put, imminence means that he remained in his creation. Maybe it should have been called imminence. That's what he did next. From the moment he made everything and started time, he stayed in his creation, his interests and actions were direct towards its management and its well-being for the purpose of expressing his glory. So he is in all of creation, everywhere, at all times. Our Lord is in your clothes, in the seat that you are sitting in, the air that you breathe, the blood that carries that breath to every cell of your bodies, where it finds, once again, God in every atom of every cell. He's in the sun, he's in the moon, the stars, in interstellar hydrogen floating around light years from everywhere. There is nowhere you could go and not find him. 
And furthermore, just to drop that third little theological term on you, his presence is ubiquitous. And that means that in power and authority, glory and grace, his potential to act is exactly the same wherever you will go. And I'll have some more to say about that just now. Friends, the fact is that although God is far above us, it is also true we cannot have a more intimate and important contact with him than the one he has established. In Acts 17.25, Scripture declares that he gives to all life, breath and all things. And in verse 28 of the same chapter we read, In him we live and move and have our being. And it's not just us, of course. Job confirms the dependency of plants and animals on God, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And everywhere we look, we will find the same. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And that same theme of Christ being at the heart of all existence is also found in Hebrews. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things, upholding all things by the word of his power. God gives us life and breath. Everything we do every day, all day is in him. He does the same for all living things. Nothing exists that is not in Christ. Nothing continues except by his power. And everything that exists was made through Christ. And this is the reality of God's transcendence and imminence working together. Now the proper understanding of this is important because there are many ways of misunderstanding how God and creation relate to one another. And this can lead us into practicing the wrong sort of relationship with God. So I'm going to bring you the most important four of these ways where things can go wrong. The first of these is materialism, which denies the existence of God at all and says that matter and science are all there is. No God. Well, hopefully that shouldn't be a problem in this building, should it? However, we need to be very careful about imagining ourselves to be completely immune to this message simply because we have made a commitment to Jesus. And this is because the world's message about the importance of earning and acquiring is so powerful that we may effectively become materialists Monday to Saturday, slaving at our desks or whatever with the aim of getting a bigger, whiter picket fence or a shinier toy while believing that because we go to church on Sunday, we are still Christians. Caution. Beware. Hokoyo chenjera, as we used to say in Zimbabwe. Secondly, there is pantheism, which is the idea that all things are God or part of God. It denies the doctrine of transcendence. 
And therefore pantheists may hold that it is appropriate to worship rocks or waterfalls or footballs since at the end of the day they are all God and having your own spirituality is what matters, right? Well, there are lots of problems here. How do we explain God's personality if he is the sum of all things when scripture clearly shows us that he has his own distinct character? Also, we know that the universe is constantly in in a state of change. If God is the universe, then he must necessarily be changing with it, and where does that leave us? Perhaps tomorrow he will change his mind and transform us all into wombats. Thirdly, there is dualism, which holds that God and the universe have existed eternally side by side, but neither has an ultimate power. So who will win? If you have been to see the latest Star Wars movies, then you've seen what such a thing would look like. Dualism denies both God's wakening power over creation and his consequent lordship over it thereafter. It also sets the goodness of his creating work at odds with a universe whose character is largely evil. And these are all concepts that are shown to be completely untrue by scripture. I'd say that dualism's only conveniences are a personal escape from the difficulty of observing God's moral and physical laws and to explain away the reason behind both good and bad experiences. There's karma and all that stuff. And I'd say it's actually a pretty popular position today, but it is entirely contrary to the truth of Scripture and ultimately it just leaves you floating around with no hope or purpose in life. Who knows? whether good or evil is going to win for me today. Lastly, there is deism, which is a sort of a halfway house. This philosophy supports the creation of all things by a transcendent God, but it denies his imminence. It gives us the idea that God flicked a switch and then he went away somewhere else to do more important godly things. Some deists do believe that when the nuclear reactor or whatever that powers the whole thing finally runs down, that God will take the time to hold people accountable to his moral laws. But until then, we are left wholly to play on our own in the traffic. However, it's hard to understand how anyone who has read the whole Bible, or even parts of it, can fail to see God's moment-by-moment involvement in all of human history. Once again, it must be that cussedness of the flesh. We hope that if we believe that God isn't watching, then what we do doesn't matter. Now, we might think that deists are those slightly weird people over there in the back row. Not us. Oh, I'm getting the evil eye. (laughs) But there are many nominal Christians whose almost complete lack of a prayer or worship life, fear of the Lord or trust in him for daily needs, actually place them squarely in that camp. We should therefore be careful to check that them over there is not actually us in here. That's quite a lot to swallow in one go, so before I leave this section, I'm just going to summarise these four main positions. So firstly we had materialism, which was all stuff and no God. Then we had pantheism. God is everywhere, but not separate. 
That means imminence, but not transcendence. Then we have dualism. God has his space, so does the universe. So neither imminence nor transcendence are allowed then. And lastly, we have deism. Due to lack of interest, God is elsewhere, and that's transcendence, but no imminence. At this point, I'll have to admit that I've subjected you to a dry-as-theological lecture, and I'm guessing you'd hope that I'd be sorry for that, but I'm not. This might be chewy stuff, but it has real flavour. I'll just remind you once again that the word theology is a combination of two Greek words, theos and logos, meaning God and knowledge respectively, and so together they mean the knowledge of God. It simply cannot be that someone who calls Christ Lord can deny their need to know about him. For if they do not know about him, how will they know to serve him? And therefore every single believer needs to be a searching theologian, although it is also true that they do not necessarily need to know the long words as long as they understand the concepts. But this is something I find lacking so often in my brothers and sisters. Here we understand that it is God who is at once far above us, yet somehow still most near us, and always completely able. Here, there, and everywhere. So I hope that by now I've explained all of the, the stuff behind that adequately, but one thing we haven't done yet, of course, is talk about what they mean for us in real life. What does transcendence and imminence and ubiquity mean for us in our daily lives? So we'll deal with them in that order. I realise I could make a very long list that would keep us here for ages, and that's not helpful, of course. I want to encourage you to go away and really think this, this stuff through, about ways that it affects you personally. So I'll just give a few examples now. Since God is transcendent, we must stop thinking of him like us, because he isn't like us. For example, God is holy. He doesn't ever sin and cannot tolerate sin at all, ever. Not even a tiny one, so as not to hurt someone else's feelings. We might think that we are bending the rules for a good cause, or maybe, hopefully, God is looking the other way. But he isn't. He can't. It's not his nature or ability. And it's it's his hope that during our lives we will make that our goal too. So because God is transcendent, we ought to set aside compromise. God is completely forgiving. I had an incident about six months ago in a car park where a lady cursed me and made some of those special hand movements in my direction for no good reason at all. I was really annoyed. How dare she? Because it was completely unjustified. I'd done nothing to her. Now, she seems to live somewhere in the general direction that I do, and I regularly see her. Her car is a most unusual colour, and so I was notice her coming. Well, you'll be glad to know that I haven't returned the favour, but I think you do know what's still going through my mind when she passes by. We shouldn't be like that. We hold on to stuff like that for far too long. Imagine if God was like that. 
and how much trouble we'd be in if it wasn't for Jesus. How much better would our own lives be if we let those hurt and angry feelings go? It's true that transcendence sets us an extremely high standard. However, it's not just there to be feared or admired or at worst ignored. It's intended to be copied. That's what sanctification is all about, a deliberate lifetime journey towards God's transcendent standard. We know that we won't be perfected before we die, but we do know that we will be perfected when we do. But that's not to say that we will ever become like God or a God. Please don't misunderstand me when I say that, but we will then become the fullness of what we were created to be, not the shadow that we are now. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. We must work towards that imminence. Next, since God is imminent, we should stop thinking about him being somewhere else because he isn't somewhere else. That means that when we need him, he is here. He is right here, right now. It's not like those science fiction stories where faster than light travel hasn't been invented yet. And so humans set off in what's basically an ark with the intention that their descendants or maybe the descendants' descendants will be the ones who actually get to Beetlejuice. The problem is that the further you get from Earth, the longer it takes to talk to anyone because the distance is huge and the speed of the communication is fixed. Remember that light takes nine minutes just to get from the sun to here. So in the ark, by the time you're a few light years from Earth, it takes years to send and receive 20 words. So you don't just bother anymore. Or perhaps you save it up for special days like Easter. But there's no time lag in, communing with, in communicating with God at all. It means that you can do all the things that you need to do right away. And you should. Praise him when you see something that reminds you of his glory. Ask him for forgiveness straight away when you have sinned. Ask for his help when you need it or you think somebody else needs it. He will hear and he will act. Share your day and your space with him and you'll be the better for it. Now I'm sure it's obvious, but it also means that God is right here when we don't really need him. Or at least we don't want him to see what we are doing. So we might spend some useful time thinking about why we might feel that way and what it might be like for him to watch when his beloved child turns their face away. Finally, since God is ubiquitous, we need to stop thinking that there is a special place we must go to to get the best effect of his favour. Some grand and ornate cathedral perhaps. Because there isn't. Because he is everywhere, always able, never weak, never lacking. There isn't even the tiniest of corners in his creation where he isn't complete in every way And so there isn't one moment or one place where if we reach out to him for help, for comfort, for consolation, that he wouldn't be able to do what is necessary. Now I've phrased that carefully. What is necessary? 
Our Heavenly Father is not like the pagan gods. We cannot sway him into offering us special favour by giving him stuff or sweet words because he knows our hearts. His aims remain his glory and our good and he will invariably do what is necessary to achieve those two things. So we should not ever imagine that his responses will always be sweetness and light. Sometimes God's response to our cry for help may be more pain. And we will not understand in that moment. We will be hurt and angry. But someday, someday we will see that that was the very best thing for us in that moment. And right now, that might be impossible to understand. But God is certainly for us. He gave his son for us. And if he placed that much value on our lives, why would he ever hurt us just for sport? Since by faith I've met him face to face, now I know the wonder of his grace and I know that he is more than just the God who doesn't care, that lives away out there. Now he walks beside me day by day, ever watching over me lest I stray, helping me to find the narrow way. He's everything to me. He's everything to all of us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this tiny glimpse of your your greatness and majesty. Lord, we're sorry that we live most often in a space that sets that knowledge aside. However, I pray that with this reminder and through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts that we would live more in the space where you are, that we would behave more like the truth of what you are and that we would be a witness and a testimony to the world of our great and glorious God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.